And before we get started, let's do the smart thing here and have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, just good to be here this morning. We just pray that as always your spirit would teach and we would listen. We ask for your blessing upon everything going on in the back, that your hand be upon that. And Lord, for those that are still traveling this holiday weekend, we pray that you keep them safe and bring them back safe in your name. Amen. All right, if you weren't with us last week, we introduced uh, what we're going to be talking about here in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Luke. We started in verse 22. In verses 22 through 56, Jesus has power over three different areas. First thing you see in verses 22 through 25 is Jesus had power over nature, creation, the elements. Verses 26 through 39, Jesus had power over the spiritual realm, over demons. And what you see here in verses 40 through 56 is Jesus has power over life and death and sickness. Now the point that we talked about last week is if Jesus has power over nature, the elements, the spiritual realm, death, sickness, life, he has power over everything. So if he has power over everything, there's nothing we need to be worried about. Because our Savior, our Master, our Lord is more powerful than anything, so therefore we place our faith and trust in that and that's what gets us through. So we did the first two last week, nature and elements and uh, spiritual realm and demons. We're going to do verses 40 through 56 today, Lord willing, time willing. We're going to talk about sickness, health, life, and death. So verse 40, so it was when Jesus returned that the multitudes welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying, but as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians who could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped, and Jesus said, Who touched me? And all denied it, Peter and those who were with him said, Master, the multitude strong and press you and you say who touched me but jesus said somebody touched me for i perceived power going out from me now when the woman saw that she was not hidden she came trembling and falling down before him she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately and he said to her daughter be of good cheer your faith has made you well go in peace now a couple things here before we get going verse 40 the multitude welcoming him Jump back to verses 19, 20, and 21. We know that where Jesus was at, there was a lot of people that wanted to be around him. We know that he crossed over the Sea of Galilee in verses 22 through 39, and now he came back in that multitude, that group of people still waiting to see him there. And now we're introduced to this man by the name of Jairus in verse 41, who's the ruler of the synagogue. And he had a 12-year-old daughter who was sick. She was dying. But you got to put yourself in this perspective here for a little bit. Okay, there's, there's people here, probably thousands and thousands of people. We know from studying out this chapter, it's referred to as a multitude of people, a throng of people. So Jairus is getting his way to try to get into Jesus. He finally gets into Jesus. And look at the wording here, verse 41. He's begging him to come to his house. This is his only daughter. Now, as parents, if you have kids, you know that if your child was sick or dying, you would do anything you could for them. Here's a man that is going to fight through the crowds, just get to Jesus. It's a miracle within itself that he even gets to Jesus. He gets down on his knees. He's begging Jesus, come to my house. My daughter is dying. So as he's doing that, all of a sudden there's this woman. She had a flow of blood for 12 years, what the Bible says. Now, we don't know what that was. The Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail. We can make guesses, but we don't know for sure. She was suffering for 12 years. She, for lack of a better word, sneaks up into the crowd, just touches Jesus' garment. She's miraculously healed. That's an amazing story right there and of itself. But we need to talk a little bit more about this gal. Stay, keep your hand here in Luke 8. Jump back to Mark 5. Mark 5 gives another gospel account of this, and it gives a little bit more background, a little bit more information about what this woman was going. Mark 5, please. Now, 
You've got to remember from Old Testament law, we don't know for sure what she was struggling with. But we do know that she'd be considered ceremonially unclean from the Old Testament law. She wouldn't be around, be around people because of this flow of blood. So this gal has been suffering. And how much has she been suffering? Mark gives us more details here. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Now it says, A certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And look at verse 26. And suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Boy, verse 26, some of us can relate to that. Because I hear the stories. You know, you, you go to this doctor. Then you go to this doctor, then you go to this doctor, and go to this doctor, and then you end up with what? No results. I'm not picking on the medical establishment. I, I'm very thankful for the medical establishment. I'm very thankful for the medical establishment we have in this nation. What a blessing that is. Don't take that the wrong way. But sometimes verse 26 does happen. This idea of searching for answers and searching for that health, and it doesn't happen. And then people come out of it worse for the wear, if you will. Broken spiritually, emotionally, sometimes financially, sometimes physically. And this is where this woman was at. She was struggling, very difficult, physically, financially, etc. Verse 27, she heard about Jesus. She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. I think verse 27 is vital. This woman was healed by touching the garment of Jesus. But how did she first know about this? She heard about Jesus. See, she heard about what Jesus could do, and then she decided on her own she wanted this. So therefore, she put effort to go to Jesus herself and touch the garment. That's important. She heard, and then she followed through on it. I mentioned not too many uh, messages ago, when I first got saved, it was my job to force people into a relationship with Christ. That's why I was going to make you come to church. I was going to make you come to Bible study. I was going to make you read the Bible. And I was going to push you into a deeper relationship. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize it's verse 27. It's my job to tell you about Jesus, and it's your job to go. When I say go find him, I don't mean that he's hiding from you, but it's your job to say, I want that. It's my job to say, here is Jesus. This is who he is. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me tell you how you can know him. Now, if you want to know him, go touch his garment. And I can't make you. I could pull you to Jesus and say, touch his garment. You have to. I want you to want it. She heard this. She wanted it. She put the effort into it. Look at verse 28. Eight, for she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Wow, amen. What a neat thing. Jump back now, if you will, to Luke 8. This woman suffered for 12 years. This woman suffered physically, financially. This woman suffered emotionally. 12 years of suffering, and it's gone just like that at the touch of Jesus. Boy, that's what Christ does. Power over sin. That's what Christ does. She got there, she came, and what an amazing thing. Now look at verse 45 here when Jesus says, who touched me? Now we've said this out here before, but it bears repeating. Anytime you see Jesus in the Bible asking a question, he's not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows who touched him. According to Mark 5, if you continue reading in that chapter, the Bible says that he's looking right at this woman when he says, who touched me? He knew exactly who it was. He wanted her to come forward on her own. He wanted her to come forward and say... This is what Jesus has done for me. You know, that's that public testimony. That's that public confession of who Christ is. See, a lot of us, God does a lot of amazing things in our lives, and then we don't say anything about it. We don't want to talk in front of the crowds. We don't want people to know. It's not that we're ashamed necessarily of Jesus. We're fearful. We're afraid. We don't know how it's going to come across. I've had many people come up and tell me before, well, I would love to witness, but I don't want to share Christ because I'm afraid if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to misquote the scripture. They're going to ask a question, and I don't know it. So I just don't say anything. See, this woman could have easily just hid, but she knew she needed to come forward. She needed to come out in faith publicly. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. See, 
I got to be honest there's sometimes I tremble when it comes to talking about the Lord kind of nervous sometimes you have an opportunity to share Christ with somebody you tremble a little bit you don't make sure you have an opportunity to make a stand you're, you're sitting there at work and there's some of your co-workers around and someone makes a comment makes a statement that's just not true and, and you feel that little voice inside of you say take a stand don't let that one go take a stand and you're like Lord not now no, not now. We tremble sometimes. When God sometimes asks us to come out faithfully, publicly, of our walk in relationship with Christ, sometimes tremble. Boy, this woman is an example of the blessing that comes. Because look at the response of Christ. Her fear became faith, verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Amen. There's no scolding. There's no rebuking. There's no, how dare you sneak in and touch my garment? How dare you do this? Her faith has made you well. Go in peace. She comes trembling, and she leaves blessed. She came in fear, and she left in faith. Wow, what a witness for us. Lord, help us to not tremble. Lord, help us to be public about what you're doing in our lives. Lord, help us to come to you. No matter what the masses are doing, help us to come to you just to get near you to touch your garment. That's what the Lord does. Now, we can't stop right here, though. There's this guy, Jerish, yet. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Now think about that for a second. Is there two more extremes? Verses 48 and 49. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 49, your daughter is dead. Did you catch this when we read this? How long did the woman have the issue of blood? 12 years. How old was Jairus' daughter? 12 years old. Two instances of 12 years. One ends in victory and healing and God is amazing. Depart in peace. God has made you well. The other ends in death. Both 12 years. I'm telling you right now in the body of Christ, be it here at Harvest Fellowship or just in any church, you have people that are in verse 48 right now. Boy, things are clicking. God has done amazing things in your life. You are of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And you are rejoicing in this season of life. Now, just two aisles over from you, there's somebody in verse 49. Boy, they're struggling. They just got news they didn't want to hear. See, every week there's somebody getting great news, verse 48, and there's somebody getting horrible news, verse 49. This is the body of Christ. This is who Jesus ministers to. Now, some of you may say, well, I'm really not in 48, I'm not really in 49. Okay, then you're right between 48 and 49. You're 48 and a half. Let's call it that, okay? Your life is going to sometimes fall in 48. Your life is sometimes going to fall in 49. Sometimes you're the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. You're healed. Depart in peace. Go in faith. Amen. Sometimes you're the person in verse 49 where you just got the news of death. It's going to happen that Jesus is still Lord over both. See, that's the purpose of this. We could have easily just said, let's do verses 40 through 48 and just end with, Amen, what an amazing story. And then we can do verses 49 through 56 next week and say, Amen, what an amazing story. But the purpose, the, right, the way they're both here, is to show you the extremes. Two things, 12 years. Isn't it fascinating that 12 years ago from this story, this woman started with an issue of blood. And her life went downhill for 12 years. Doctors couldn't help her. People couldn't help her. She was a wreck for 12 years. Jairus, 12 years ago, had the birth of his daughter. And for 12 years, he watched this girl grow into an amazing young woman. One woman going downhill for 20 years. One other woman going uphill for 12 years. They meet in the middle, and one ends in healing. One ends in death. But Jesus is smack dab in the middle of this. So what does Christ do? Verse 50, but when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept 
and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. And her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. He charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, we know how the story ends. But put yourself in Jairus' position for a second. Jairus just saw this amazing thing happen. This woman just got healed. He, he just saw it. Don't you think there was a glimmer of hope? Jesus can do this. Jesus can take care of my daughter. But did you catch verse 49 while he was still speaking? So Jairus' moment disappeared. Now, now put yourself in Jairus' shoes. I'm going to be honest. If I was in Jairus' shoes, my response, and if I saw verse 49, I'd be angry. I'd be angry at Jesus. Jesus, you could have come to my house. You could have. You could have healed my daughter. This, this woman suffered for 12 years for crying out loud. She can wait another 20 minutes. You can come back and touch her later on. I'd be mad at the woman. I had him first. I was at his feet. I was begging. He was coming to my house to take care of my daughter. You butted in, and because since you butted in, my daughter's dead. Don't we do that? Don't we have those moments of why is my prayer not answered? See, I, I'm sick and tired of hearing all these other testimonies of I prayed and God answered and everything's great. Okay, I'm tired of that because I do the same prayer to the same God on the same situation and my life doesn't change. My stuff doesn't happen the way it happens for everybody else. Don't we have those fleshly moments? Now, we won't admit it publicly because we're all perfect here, but in our heart, we really do. Now, it's interesting. What was Jairus' response to this? It's not recorded. We don't know what his response was. Don't you think that maybe the reason Jesus spoke so quickly in verse 15 is to just nip that in the bud. Before Jairus could even have a response, Jesus' response in verse 50 is, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Now, we know she's made well. We saw how the story ends. Jairus didn't know that. Jairus is now walking with Jesus back to his house to see what? His dead daughter. Did he know what was going to happen? I don't know. Once again, it's not revealed what Jairus thought. Now, who gets to go in verse 51? Peter, James, and John. You've heard me joke about this before. Why is it always Peter, James, and John get to go in? It's possible that they were going to be foundations of the church. We know Peter was. John was. James was the first martyr. Maybe God had them always closer to say, hey, you guys need to see this. My personal opinion is those were the troublemakers. And so Jesus said, I, I can't trust you guys out there. I can trust the other nine, but I can't trust you. I'll leave the nine alone, and I'll take the three with me. We do that with our kids. Right now, Layden is our Peter, James, and John. Wherever we go, somebody's got laden. I got laden, Don, you have the other four. That's just the way it works. You can't leave them alone. Maybe Peter, James, and John were the ones where Jesus said, oh, guys, I just can't trust you. you got to stay with But either way, they're in. And as they go in, she's dead. They're mourning. They're weeping. His response, verse 52, do not weep. She's not dead but sleeping. In verse 53, they ridiculed him. Boy, do you, do you realize that you're going to be ridiculed for your faith? I mean, do you realize, according to the world, how strange we are, how simple we are. We're a simpleton. Because can you believe that we actually believe that there was this really big flood and there was a boat and these animals came two by two, got on the boat, and that we really believe that maybe God created the world in six days and we really believe there's this guy by the name of Jonah that lived in the fish. We really believe that Jesus died and rose again. See, to the world, we're such simple. We believe in this book that's thousands of years old. And, and what happens then in verse 53 we're ridiculed. We're completely and utterly ridiculed for that. Here's the thing. If they mocked Jesus 2,000 years ago, don't you think they're going to do the same thing to us today? We're not immune to this. And as the longer the world goes on, the stranger our belief system becomes, and the stranger we are for believing this book in faith, the more we're going to be mocked and we're going. And, and you know what? 
That's not a shock or surprise. 1 Corinthians says this in chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you work with non-believers, if you live with non-believers, if you have non-believing relatives, they think you're a fool. It's okay. They think the same thing about Jesus. Jesus said you're actually blessed, according to Luke 6, when you're mocked and ridiculed for the faith. And so what do we have a tendency to do as Christians? We have a tendency to cling around other Christians that believe the same thing because that way we don't feel so strange. But I tell you, to really make a difference in the world, you're going to have to get out there and be mocked. You're going to have to get out there and be ridiculed. Now, it's a little bit easier for me as a pastor because when somebody calls me up and let's say they're not from the church they're from the community and they're like hey so-and-so at church gave me your number i'm really struggling here and and here's the situation what, what do you think i come around and say listen i'm a pastor you know what i'm going to say it all comes down to the lord that's pretty simple straightforward for me i'm that's what i'm going to say but when you work with other people and you're going to be around non-believers at school at home at work at life sometimes relationships you choose to have sometimes relationships you're forced to have they're going to be mocked and jesus was mocked too so what did jesus do when he was mocked verse 54 According to my translation, he put them all outside and took her by the hand and called little girl rise. He put them outside. That's what you got to do sometimes spiritually. Sometimes you just have to push those people outside. And I don't mean literally. But you have to reach a point where you cannot allow an individual to dictate your faith and your walk in relationship with Christ. Too often I see Christians get too worked up over a person and what they think and believe about us. Don't give a person that much power and authority. I, I hear this all the time. Fill in the blank, be it friend, relative, or what have you. I'll go up to somebody. How's it going? How's it going okay? What's wrong? Oh, it's my mom. What? I don't know. Every time I talk to my mom about the Lord, she always makes some comment. She always says something, and it just really brings me down. And Don't give your mom that much power. Put her outside. Not literally, but just you get the point. Too often we allow one person to have too much power in our walk and relationship with Christ because, well, they say this and they say, who cares? It's you and Jesus. Move forward and forget about everything else. Jesus could have preached them in verse 54. No, in verse 54 he said, get out. He's got ministry to focus on. Sometimes spiritually we got to do that. You're always going to have somebody in your life that is going to not like what you're doing spiritually. Boy, move on. Move forward. So, they go outside, amazing, verse 55, she's uh, healed here, she's, you know, resurrected, and what happens that she has, she's given something to eat that shows wholeness, that her body is working, she's completely back to normal, and what a great, amazing story this is. Jesus, power over life and death, power over sickness, two gals, one 12 years of suffering, one 12 years of life, one healed, one died, but yet... Both the Lord takes care of. What an amazing picture here of Christ having power over life and death. Now, but what I want to do is there's this phrase that really hit me in verse 50. Look what Jesus said to Jairus. He said, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Two things there. Do not be afraid, only believe. The first word is that word believe. That word believe is thrown out way too often in Christian circles. I remember when I first got saved, when I would go up and start talking to people about the Lord, I would start out simple. Do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I didn't know what else to say. Okay, you're good. Check. Next person. You know, you believe in God. And it was one of those things where I started realizing as I got deeper in my walk with the Lord, this word believe is a pretty powerful word. It says in the book of James, even the demons believe in God. See, this word believe means to actually put your trust in. This does not mean just merely acknowledge that God exists. Now, you all work with people that aren't saved. You all live with people that aren't saved. Some of you even here today may not be saved. But the majority of people that I run into believe in God. I have met very few staunch atheists that truly do not believe there is nothing out there. Now, their belief system may not line up with the Bible, but they believe in God. That's not saving faith. That's a mere acknowledgement that God exists. This word is a powerful word where it's not just merely acknowledging that there is a God, a heaven, a hell, and Jesus died on the cross. 
That's not this word. This word is, I place my faith and trust in it, so therefore my life now revolves around. See, when Jesus asked Jairus in verse 15, 50, excuse me, only believe, he wasn't just saying, Jairus, do you believe I exist? Well, yeah, Jesus, you're right there. No, he's saying, Jairus, do you believe? Do you believe that I'm capable of doing this? Are you placing your faith and trust in me? Do you believe? Once again, I'm willing to bet probably all of us here, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, but do you really believe God? Is that what your life revolves around? That's what that word means. See, Jesus can then give peace and salvation when we have that belief system. See, the problem was what I run into a lot. There's a lot of people that believe in God. Their life doesn't revolve around it. So when the storms of life hit, they're knocked down completely flat. Yes, you believe in the existence of God. But how's that relationship with him going? See, because when that relationship with him is strong, you can get the rest of verse 50. Do not be afraid. See, that phrase, do not be afraid, really hit me. When I read that, I thought, boy, I've heard this a lot. If you look in the Gospels, there's six times where Jesus said, do not be afraid. Six times where he says, do not be afraid. And I thought, okay, if he's constantly repeating this, there's a reason why he's doing it. So what I want to do here real quick, we're not going to turn there. We're just going to go through them real quick. What are the six times where Jesus did not be afraid? I'm willing to bet that you fall into one of those six categories probably right now. The first one, and these aren't in chronological order, Jairus' daughter. How many of you here right now are faced with life and death and sickness. That's a scary time for you. Maybe you got the diagnosis that you didn't want to get. Maybe a loved one got it that you didn't want them to get. Maybe you just tasted death. A loved one just passed. I don't know. You're faced with life and death and health and sickness. Jesus is telling you, don't be afraid. That's what he's telling you. Just like with Jairus' daughter, just like with the woman with the issue of blood, don't allow that sickness and that fear to control you. That's the first one. Next one. This is where the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm came. What did Jesus tell them? Don't be afraid. You may not be facing life and death and sickness right now, but you've got a lot of storms in life. The water's filling up your boat. Your boat's got a lot of leaks in it. And instead of staying afloat, you're pretty sure you're starting to sink. Jesus said, don't be afraid. See, he says, believe. Trust me that I can get you through the storm's life. There is going to be storms in your life. There's no doubt about that. You trust that the Lord's going to get you it. Third one. This is kind of an interesting one. This is the transfiguration. If you remember correctly, the transfiguration is when Jesus went on top of the mountain. He allowed his glory to be revealed. Moses and Elijah appeared beside him. And who was up there with him? Peter, James, and John. Now, what was Peter, James, and John's, what was the result of them seeing this transfiguration? They were scared. So Jesus said, don't be afraid of them. Now, why would they be afraid? They just saw God in his glory and his greatness. Do you realize how overwhelming that is? You know, as Christians, when God does something amazing, you would think that we'd hit our knees, praise Jesus, and to God be the glory. Sometimes when God does something absolutely amazing, and I get a tiny glimpse into how powerful he is, I sometimes get a little trembly. Is that a word, trembly? I sometimes get a little trembly. Wow, Lord, you're amazing. And when you realize how amazing God is, you realize how sinful you are. And then you step back a little bit. It's like, Lord, this, this is a little overwhelming. A little overwhelming. There's a little phrase of getting too close to the glory. I remember um, it wasn't that long ago. We were out. Uh, I was outside. I was grilling some stuff. And you've heard me tell the story before how I got this grill and it has the electric start. I've been dumb enough to push the button while holding it, and it shocks me. So I don't even set up the electric start anymore. So what I do is I open up the grill, turn on the propane, and I just flick a match in. That's how I light it. That's how I do it. But what happened was is uh, we had these matches that weren't really working all that well. So I lit the match, tried to throw it in, didn't go. Lit the match, tried to throw it in, didn't go. Probably about the third or fourth match, it finally lit. Well, the propane had been going. So I tasted the glory. And I, my, my eyebrows got singed. I thought I was going to have to shave the goatee. It got burned. I actually had to go trim some of my hair off. Got This arm lost a good chunk of hair. I got too close to the glory. So now, when I went out to grill the next time, if this is the grill, I'm stepping back. And I'm going flicking the matches from a distance. Sometimes that's what happens spiritually. And I've seen this. It is God does something that's overwhelming, amazing. The word miracle fits it. 
Some people don't know how to handle that. And they back off. And instead, from a distance, I'm like, guys, look what God just did in your life. This is amazing. Take this. Run with it. Go forward. And they're like, yeah, this is a little too much for me. To the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. That's overwhelming. They saw Jesus in his glory. Guys, Moses and Elijah appeared beside Jesus. That's pretty crazy. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid when God reveals his greatness. Next one, fourth one, calling. Do you realize when Jesus called the disciples to follow him, he had to tell them, don't be afraid. Do you realize sometimes how fearful it is to have spiritual responsibility? When the Lord reveals to you, I want you to go share Christ with that person. Me? Or send somebody else. The Lord says, I want you to start that Bible study. The Lord says, I want you to take that stand at work. The Lord says, I want you to be the one to tell them about me. Or me? Moses, when he was called, he tried to get out of it. Gideon, when he was called, he tried to get out of it. Sometimes when God reveals his calling and says, this is what I want you to do, instead of us being excited like Isaiah and saying, here I am, Lord, send me. Or like, here I am, Lord, send somebody else because I really don't want to do it. Now, we use excuses. And I'm not picking on anybody, but they are excuses. I don't know what to say. I don't want to misquote a verse. I don't want to mess this up. If God is calling you, he's also going to give you the words and the wisdom. He will. So God says, I want you to do it. And we get scared. We do. I remember 12 years ago when I took over out here at church, sat in one of those classrooms right to the right. And going through the whole process, I'd been the assistant pastor for a few years. You know, Jim had stepped down, and so we went through this process, and the board and I met, and the board said, hey, and we want it to be you. And there was this amazing moment of excitement of, wow, Lord, this is something I prayed for and wanted. I can't believe this is happening. Followed by a moment of sheer terror of like, oh, my goodness, I'm responsible. I used to love it when I was the assistant under Jim because anytime something big happened, I don't know, man, I'll, I'll take that to Jim. I'll see what he says, and I'll pray about it. It was so easy to pass the buck. Then I was the pastor. I got no one to pass the buck to. Responsibility. I sometimes look at my life and I see these five boys in my house and it's like, wow, Lord, I'm responsible to raise them up in Christ. I look at my wife, Lord, I'm responsible to be a godly father and husband. Sometimes we see that calling and it scares us. And that's why Jesus has to say, don't be afraid of where I've called you, sir. I don't know how many times people have said, well, I really felt led to do on the blind. Serve there. Witness to this person. Tell this person I'm praying. But what? Well, then I thought about it and I got a little spite. Don't be afraid. Fifth one. Two left. The resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, and what did he have to tell the disciples when he first saw them? Don't be afraid. Has God ever done something unexpected in your life, and instead of rejoicing, you kind of got a little scared? This is not what I planned. This is not what I saw coming. Now, it's easy for us to look back at the resurrection and say, why weren't these guys excited? I mean, we look forward to Easter. You know, we, we come on Sunday morning, and we sing, up from the grave he arose. You know, we're excited. We have donuts. We have all this fun on Easter morning. You, you would think that the disciples knew that Jesus was going to rose. You would think that they would go hang out in front of the tomb on Sunday morning. They would tailgate and just wait. He's coming. The stone's going to roll away. No. They, they thought he was dead. If you look throughout the Gospels, I don't think there's one person that was saying, hey, don't forget, guys, Jesus is going to rise Sunday. So when Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't know what to do. This was unexpected. This was fearful. This was scary to them. So Jesus had to say, don't be afraid. Sometimes when God does something unexpected in your life, our response is fear instead of faith. Sometimes those unexpected things are surprises that are amazing. They offered me the job. I didn't think they would. She said yes. I didn't think she'd say yes. Sometimes they're not so exciting. I didn't get the job. She said no. And so those unexpected things create fear instead of faith. When something in your life happens that's unexpected and you didn't see it coming, it's an opportunity for God to show his peace and his strength. That's why he says don't be afraid. Last one. Jesus said when facing persecution, don't be afraid. Now granted, we, we are very blessed to live where we live. We can meet here openly and freely, not under threat of persecution or attack. 
and you can go into work tomorrow or tonight. You can go into school tomorrow, and you can share Christ. Now, we get scared, though, don't we? What happens if they don't want to hear it? What happens if they don't like it? What happens? What happens? Don't walk in fear of what people may do or may say when you open up about your relationship with Christ. Jesus said, don't fear what they can do to you physically. He says, if anything, be afraid of that the one that has your soul. Is God. Jesus says, don't be afraid of persecution. So let's look at these six things one more time. Death, life, sickness, Jairus' daughter. If you're facing anything today with death, life, sickness, don't be afraid. Jesus is there. Next one, boat, the storms of life. Maybe your life is falling apart right now. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Third one, transfiguration. Maybe you got a glimpse into the greatness and glory of God. He has done something amazing in your life. And instead of rejoicing, you're kind of a little overwhelmed. Don't be afraid. Maybe the fourth one here, calling. God has called you to share. God has called you to serve. He know You know what he wants you to do. But instead of walking in faith, you're walking in fear of, Lord, are you sure it's me? Fifth one, resurrection. God has done something completely unexpected in your life. Completely unexpected. Instead of being excited about what God's going to do, you're afraid. Last one, persecution. You're afraid of what people say. You're afraid of what people think. You're afraid to be open about your walk in relationship to Christ. Don't be afraid. Whatever situation you're facing, Jesus probably said, don't be afraid in that scenario. And as we've learned here the last two weeks, if Christ has power over the elements in nature, if he has power over the spiritual realm and the demons, if he has power over life and death and sickness, he has power over everything, don't be afraid. It's a pretty simple, straightforward thing. Marvin Callie, if you come forward here for the final song. I don't know what you're facing today. 